A shocking accusation from Cassidy Hutchinson against Rudy Giuliani, the lead, starts right now. In her new book, The Star Witness, in the January 6th committee hearings, Cassidy Hutchinson now says Rudy Giuliani groped her. This according to an excerpt obtained by The Guardian. Now Giuliani is responding. Plus, interrogated on the Hill, tough questions put to Attorney General Merrick Garland about the special counsel investigations into Hunter Biden, into former President Donald Trump, and the Justice Department's decisions to proceed with charges. Who does he report to? Again, I'm, I'm not going to get into this. Is these. it you? I'm ultimately responsible. Is it the DAG? Mr. Weiss did not have to report to anybody. He was the supervisor and decision maker in these matters. Also this hour, a brand new CNN poll zeroing in on the first in the nation primary state of New Hampshire, a state Trump won the primary for in 2016, but lost in the general election then and in 2020. Where does he stand with the voters of New Hampshire today? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We begin with our law and justice lead, the Attorney General of the United States, Merrick Garland, forcefully attempting to rebuke Republicans who are accusing him and the Justice Department of political bias. As the president himself has said, and I reaffirm today, I am not the president's lawyer. This Republican-led House Judiciary Committee hearing earlier today is the culmination of months of tensions. Today, those House Republicans accuse the Attorney General of weaponizing the Justice Department to work in favor of President Biden's son, Hunter, while targeting President Biden's opponent, Donald Trump. Garland repeatedly defended the independence of the Justice Department and the special counsel, saying no one has told the special counsel to indict Trump, no one has told him to indict Trump, and he has not interfered in any way in the Hunter Biden probe. CNN's Sarah Murray begins our coverage of this intense day of questioning for Garland over his role in the Hunter Biden investigation and how that plea deal fell apart in July. And belief so help you God. Attorney General Merrick Garland squaring off against his toughest Republican critics on Capitol Hill today. The fix is in. Even with the face-saving indictment last week of Hunter Biden, everyone knows the fix is in. I am not the president's lawyer. I will add, I am not Congress's prosecutor. Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee hounding Garland for details about the criminal investigation into Hunter Biden. After his plea deal imploded in July and he was indicted last week in connection with a 2018 gun purchase. After five years, what stage are we in? Are we in the beginning stage, the middle stage, the end stage, the keep hiding the ball stage? What stage are we in? I'm not permitted to discuss ongoing investigations. Well, that isn't that convenient. I think it's too brave. Whistleblowers came forward and a judge called BS on the plea deal. You guys tried to get past him. Garland rebuffing Republicans' questions and deferring to special counsel David Weiss, who is overseeing is the Hunter Biden probe. I left it to Mr. Weiss whether to bring charges or not. That would include whether to let statute of limitations expire or not, whether there was sufficient evidence to bring a case that was subject to the statute of limitations or not, whether there were better cases to bring or not. The attorney general reiterating that he stayed out of the Hunter Biden investigation. I promised the Senate when I came um, before it for confirmation that I would leave Mr. Weiss in place and that I would not interfere with his investigation. Has anyone at the department told President Biden to knock it off with Hunter? 
No one that I know of has spoken to the White House about the Hunter Biden case. But the political interference accusation is sure to reemerge as the GOP-controlled House proceeds with an impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. These are allegations of abuse of power, obstruction, and corruption. Leaving Garland to fend off threats of being held in contempt. Aren't you in fact in contempt of Congress when you refuse to answer? Congressman, I have the greatest respect for Congress. And Democrats to defend Garland, pointing out Jim Jordan's refusal to comply with a January 6th committee subpoena. That is quite rich because the guy who's leaving the hearing room right now, Mr. Jordan, is about 500 days into evading his subpoena. Garland beating back criticism of the department and career civil servants, some of whom have been named by Republicans as they barrel ahead in their probe into alleged political bias at DOJ. Singling out individual career public servants who are just doing their jobs is dangerous, particularly at a time of increased threats to the safety of public servants and their families. We will not be intimidated. Now, just today, special counsel David Weiss said Hunter Biden should have to appear in person for his first court appearance on those gun charges to promote the public's confidence that he's not getting any special treatment. Jake, a judge, just agreed with prosecutors and said Hunter Biden does have to appear in person in court in Delaware next week. All right, Sarah Murray, thanks so much. Let's bring in CNN's Evan Patos. Evan, the attorney general also tried to shut down the claim that Donald Trump made without a scintilla of evidence, I should note that it was President Biden who ordered Trump be indicted. That's right, Jake. Look, the, the overall theme of the, of the day was that the Justice Department has been politicized, that uh, the attorney general is doing the bidding of Joe Biden, the president, uh, in order to attack uh, his, uh, his chief opponent, uh, Donald Trump, of course, in those uh, indictments, those two federal indictments. Uh, here's the former president uh, making that claim over the weekend in an interview. He went to the Attorney General of the United States and he told him, indict Trump. And not surprisingly, the Attorney General pushed back very forcefully against that, saying that there has been none of that, none of those instructions, especially because the, the, the charges that have been brought have been brought by a special counsel. Listen. No one has told me uh, to indict, and in this case, the decision to indict was made by the special counsel. So that statement the president made on Sunday was false. I'm just going to say again that uh, no one has told me uh, who should be indicted uh, in, uh, in, in, in any matter like this. And uh, the decision about indictment was made by Mr. Smith. Jake, you saw a lot of careful wording from the attorney general, but you also saw a lot more fire in him than you've seen in some of the previous hearings. Uh, certainly he pushed back when uh, uh, Congressman Van Drew from New Jersey accused him of being of discriminating against Catholic. He said that was an absurd claim. He also pushed back against claims that the Justice Department is targeting parents for speaking out at school board meetings. Jake. Evan, stick around and let's bring in former Illinois Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger and former U.S. Attorney, uh, Assistant Attorney uh, Kerry uh, Cordero. Uh, Adam, uh, Attorney uh, General Garland refused uh, to answer uh, questions related to ongoing investigations led by Special Counsel Weiss. There were calls to hold him in contempt of Congress, but uh, Democratic Congressman Eric Swalwell on the committee pointed out uh, that Jordan refused to comply with your January 6th committee subpoenaed to testify, um, how do you interpret the back and forth? 
Well, I mean, it's just show, you know, I think, look, yes, uh, Jordan refused to refused our subpoena, refused to talk to us. He and others uh, did the same. And it also happens to be some of these that are the loudest. Um, it is completely appropriate for the attorney general not to comment at this hearing on ongoing investigations. As far as I know, that's pretty much what every attorney general does, especially on issues like this. And all it is, is, you know, uh, Jim Jordan knows the others on the committee know that he can't comment. And so they try to fashion questions in a way that make it look like there's something he's hiding when there's not anything he's hiding. He oversees the Justice Department and justice right now was being done, for instance, against Donald Trump and against Hunter Biden. But uh, it's their their goal is to try to make it look like there's some double standard, as we know, that's what they've been saying, even though that isn't the case. And Carrie, I mean, they're, they're making a, they're a big attempt, these House Republicans, to, to paint Merrick Garland uh, as some Democratic hack. But the truth is, there are Republican former attorneys general, including Trump's own Bill Barr, who have pointed to the strength of the cases against Donald Trump. Right. Well, in this particular hearing, the attorney general really took pains uh, to demonstrate that he is trying to lead the department in a nonpartisan, impartial way. And what that has meant is that he has appointed special counsels to take on cases where there could be any possible appearance uh, or inference that he would be making decisions for any inappropriate reason. So when it pertains to the former president, he's appointed a special counsel and he has given special counsel Jack Smith wide discretion and decision making about the cases regarding former President Trump. When it comes to the current president's son, he has now appointed the U.S. attorney in Delaware as a special counsel to be able to make the final decisions in that case. So he is showing how much he is trying to keep his position as attorney general impartial and run the department in a nonpartisan way. But then what that means is that he is extricated from the facts of the cases himself in some ways, which then can make him appear like he's not answering questions. Evan, I wonder if Hunter Biden's lawyers are, are kicking themselves for not making that plea deal work, for, for getting their back up when the judge was pushing and probing on it, because now he faces, Hunter Biden faces federal gun charges, a special counsel investigation that's ongoing. He's likely going to face some tougher charges on, on tax issues in Los Angeles and Washington, D.C., do you think his lawyers wish they could take a mulligan and, and do it do it over again? I think Hunter Biden certainly believes that and certainly uh, wishes that that were the case. Look, I mean, the, the judge had not unreasonable questions, Jake, when she asked these very, very questions at that hearing. You know, what does this cover? Do you understand, Hunter Biden uh, and, uh, you know, your, your team, what this this agreement covers? And in the end, what happened was Hunter Biden's lawyer got his back up and, 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 and said, essentially, we don't have a deal. And that is something that you see now David Weiss, the special counsel, bringing up. Uh, he points out that uh, the, it, was the, it was Hunter Biden's attorneys who couldn't simply just answer the questions from the judge. And that's one reason why they're saying that Hunter Biden has to come back and present himself in court uh, you know, for his arraignment. He, he can't do it over Zoom, over video conference. And so, look,
look, I do think that there, there's a lot of wishing by Hunter Biden that this had gone through because this is obviously going to be a very painful process and it's going to be front and center as the Republicans uh, pursue their, uh, their impeachment inquiry in the coming weeks, Jake. Adam Kinzinger, how, how do you see these attacks by your former Republican colleagues on the Justice Department, the, the attacks by Matt Gates and Jim Jordan and, and Tom Massey? Uh, what do you think... Uh, they achieve in terms of the public's perception of the Justice Department? Well, first off, they're dishonorable, and I think that's important to keep in mind uh, as we talk about the political impacts. The political impacts is I think they'll be somewhat effective because as Donald Trump is facing legitimate charges, whether it's handling the classified documents, whether it's January 6th and all these other issues in Georgia and New York, They're going to try to throw as much spaghetti against the wall to create people. They're going to flood the zone, as uh, Steve Bannon would always say, that that's what you're going to see. You're going to see them continue to try to flood the zone. And I think it's going to be somewhat effective. But I think people need to keep in mind that this is about a president that broke the law and not about a president's son that wasn't in government. Evan Pettis, Kerry Cordero, Adam Kinzinger, thanks all of you. CNN has a brand new poll out this hour on the race for 2024. And the person coming in closest to Donald Trump in New Hampshire, not Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, a former attorney for Donald Trump who pushed election lies, now on the list to testify against him in the Georgia case, alleging a conspiracy to steal the state's 16 electoral votes. Plus, we're going to have that stunning accusation by Cassidy Hutchinson reported in The Guardian from her new book, claiming that Rudy Giuliani groped her. Stay with us. In our 2024 lead, a new CNN poll conducted by the University of New Hampshire shows voters in that state are not yet sold on Florida Governor Ron DeSantis becoming the Republican presidential nominee. This poll revealing a tight race among three other candidates, despite being, the, being behind the frontrunner, former President Donald Trump. CNN's David Chalian is at the magic wall for us to break it all down. David, who's in that battle for second place among Republicans in New Hampshire? Well, as you note, Jake, in our brand new CNN poll in partnership with the University of New Hampshire, Donald Trump is the clear frontrunner here. He's at 39% support. This is among likely Republican primary, go- uh, primary voters. Jake, there is a four-way tie, basically. This is all margin of error uh, for second place. DeSantis at 10%, Christie at 11%, Haley at 12%, Ramaswamy at 13 So there's a four-way hunt here for second place in this race. And take a look at how this compares to where we were in the battle in the first in the nation primary state in July. If you take a look, Donald Trump has remained the same since July. Ramaswamy is way up. Haley is way up. Christie is way up. Ron DeSantis is way down. He's dropped from 23% to 10%. Again, they are in a battle for that second place slot there. We asked Republican primary voters, who do you think has the best chance of winning the general election? 51%, a majority say Donald Trump. 16% say Ron DeSantis. 10% say Nikki Haley. I just want to note, remember, Donald Trump is at 39% support. So about 20% of voters who are supporting someone else still think that Donald Trump has the best shot at winning. And although we see Chris Christie on the rise in this poll, take a look at his ceiling. It's pretty low. 60% of New Hampshire likely Republican primary voters say they would never, ever support 
Christy, Mike Pence is at 42% on this score. That creates a low ceiling for someone like Chris Christie, Jake. What are New Hampshire Republican voters' top issues, and what are they looking for in a nominee? So in terms of the top issues, 39% say it's jobs and economy. 19% say immigration. 6% cost of living, also related to the economy, of course. 6% foreign policy. But Jake, I find this fascinating. Look at how it breaks when you look at Trump supporters versus all the other voters that are supporting candidates not named Trump. You see a difference here. Among Trump supporters, the issue set jobs in the economy and immigration are sort of tied for the top position of most important. Personal freedom comes next at at 10%. But look, if you are not supporting Donald Trump, overwhelmingly, nearly half, 48% say it's jobs in the economy, 14% say immigration. And you said, what are they looking for in a nominee? We also see big differences between Trump supporters and those supporting someone else. Among Trump supporters, 97% looking for someone who says what they believe, 60% strong morals, 93% fighting for conservative values. Uh, You know, less important to them is someone being respectful. But look here, if you're not supporting Donald Trump, 74% has strong morals, 88% says what they believe, 75% are looking for someone who can attract non-Republican support to win, 73% are looking for someone respectful. You see the different Uh, sort of qualities in a candidate uh, that are important to voters who are supporting the former president and those that are not, Jake. All right, David Chalian, fascinating. Thanks so much. Joining us now, someone who has been spending a lot of time talking to those very Republican voters in New Hampshire, CNN Chief National Correspondent John King. John, how does this new CNN New Hampshire poll compare to the voters you've been personally speaking with? It matches up quite uh closely, actually. Reporting when you talk to voters, as you know, it's anecdotal. But then you look at the numbers, you say, okay, we found good voters when we were up there. What does it tell you? As David just laid out, six in 10 Republicans or people who plan to vote in the Republican primary in New Hampshire want somebody else. So Donald Trump can be beat. But do not mistake that for Donald Trump will be beat. With the fractured field, it's very difficult. As David noted, nobody has emerged as a clear alternative to Trump. But Jake, if you want to say something to watch over the next couple months, listen here. These are two Trump voters, Natalia Orlando, Andrew Konchak. They are both for Trump. They She was for Rand Paul last time in the primary. He was for Trump last time in the primary. Both say it's a little different this time. I personally don't think that he's as strong as he was in 2016. I have people who argue with me about that and tell me I'm wrong and get mad that I'm saying this. But I'm going to be honest and say, no, I don't see it. Why? I just don't see the same enthusiasm that I did in 2016 behind him. Then compared to now, same, different, less, more? I think it'd be less now. Yeah, I think uh, more people in New Hampshire were for, in like New England or whatever, were more for Trump than they are now, because all the legal cases and yeah, it did it did impact him around here. The challenge, though, Jake, is you know he's not the new guy anymore. He doesn't sound as insurgent. He's not tweeting up a storm, which Natalia really likes. Andrew, not so much. Uh, so Trump's not new, but he still has that big support in a crowded field. The question is, can anybody else and can one somebody else, not four or five somebody else come up a little, can one somebody else emerge? At the moment, it looks a lot like 2016. The answer to that question today is no. One of the voters with whom you spoke is a commercial fisherman registered as an independent, voted for Trump in 2016, leaning toward a different candidate in 2024. Uh, Let's take a listen. I am extremely likely to vote for Robert Kennedy, yes. He is willing to state that we should not blindly trust corporations or our government. 
RFK Jr., really. Really, uh, really. And, and, and Lucas Raymond there says a lot of his Republican-leaning friends in the f- commercial fishing industry are with him. Uh, what is that? Part of it is in tr- when they went to Trump in 2016, they wanted a non-traditional politician. They wanted somebody new. They vo- view Trump now, some of them, as a politician. Andrew, uh, uh, Lucas, excuse me, voted for him in 2016, but doesn't like, didn't like the chaos. Said he liked a lot of the policies, but didn't think Trump could be as effective. Why does he want Robert Kennedy? Uh, number one, a Republican friend shared the Joe Rogan podcast and he liked what he heard. Number two, politics is so personal to these people. The fishing industry in New Hampshire is in decline, Jake. They think they're on the verge of extinction. Robert Kennedy, as an environmental lawyer, whatever you think about him on other issues like vaccines, has helped fishermen in the past, has helped them fight commercial pollution, pollution in their waters. They see someone who might help them protect their job. That's it. They'll excuse everything else. Yeah, sure. There's a very attractive anti-corporation, uh, anti-establishment message from him combined with all the other stuff there. Right. As you mentioned, some of the New Hampshire voters with whom he spoke are focused very much on the economy. That's also reflected in this new CNN University of New Hampshire poll. Right. But on a nationwide abortion ban after 15 weeks, 78 percent of Trump supporters back it compared to the 40 percent who support other Republican candidates. What are you hearing about voters' thoughts on this? In New Hampshire, you hear almost nothing unless you ask the question, and I think that's a very important point. New Hampshire voters, it tends to be a less ideological, more of an independent, more of a libertarian electorate. They don't bring up the abortion issue unless you ask them about it. That's not... universal, but it's close to universal. This is an interesting challenge going forward, Jake, and the difference between Iowa and New Hampshire. Can Governor DeSantis rebound? He has to get a win in an early state. The abortion issue will play a lot more. About six in 10, maybe more of that. Voters in Iowa will be evangelicals. Only about 20 percent in New Hampshire, 25 percent identify that way. So that's what they think, but it's not a big voting issue in New Hampshire. Watch Iowa. Yeah, New Hampshire is very different. New Hampshire Republicans than Iowa Republicans. John King, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Today, Republican Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky said he will not sign any government spending bill that includes funding for Ukraine. I'm going to get reaction from retired Navy pilot turned astronaut turned U.S. Democratic Senator Mark Kelly. That's next. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In our politics lead, as House Republicans argue over a spending agreement to try to keep the federal government from shutting down, U.S. military aid to Ukraine has become a central issue after making his plea for continued support on the world stage. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is headed to Washington, D.C. to take his pitch directly to U.S. lawmakers. Joining us now to discuss, Democratic Senator Mark Kelly from Arizona. 
who serves on the Senate Armed Services Committee. Uh, Senator, thanks for joining us. So President Zelensky is expected to meet with President Biden in D.C. tomorrow. You and your Senate colleagues are going to soon get a, a classified briefing on Ukraine ahead of Zelensky's visit. Um, his return comes as the House is locked in this contentious government funding fight, in part over U.S. aid for Ukraine. Uh, how do you respond to your colleague, Senator Rand Paul, who says he, quote, will not consent to expedited passage of any spending measure that provides any more U.S. aid to Ukraine, unquote? Um, do you think funding Ukraine should be uh, tied uh, to the spending bill, the government spending bill? Well, Jake, I just got back from Ukraine last night at about 10 p.m., and this is my second trip, and it really reinforced in me the fighting spirit of the Ukrainian people uh, under horrific uh, circumstances. Uh, Vladimir Putin, I mean, is committing war crimes daily uh, against women and children. Um, and this is really a, a fight of good versus evil. And the American people have always stood on the side of good here. We've got to fund Ukraine. At the same time, we've got to keep the government open. Uh, closing down the federal government hurts people. Uh, it'll hurt my constituents. It'll hurt people across the country. What did the Ukrainian commanders with whom you met tell you that they, they need to defend themselves against Russia? Things that they're, that they're not getting, maybe. Well, we talked a lot about F-16s. I met with uh, F-16 or uh, MiG-29 pilots that'll hopefully transition to the F-16. So I had a round table of commanders and pilots. Uh, these were some of the colleagues of the MiG-29 pilot that was killed in that tragic accident a couple weeks ago. And we talked about like specific capabilities. So they need to transition to a fourth generation fighter. We're doing that. They also need a longer range surface to surface missile. The artillery that we've sent them, that goes about 18 miles. HIMARS about 45. The ATACAMS missile system goes about 190 miles. That'll really make a difference. So we had those uh, discussions. I'm interested to see what DOD says today and compare it to what I learned in Ukraine over the last few days. So about the ATACAMS, yesterday Secretary of Defense Austin was asked if Ukraine's request for these long-range ATACAMS missiles, uh, if it included them, this is how he answered. In terms of whether or not uh, that request is a legitimate request, uh, you know, I, it's, I, I won't uh, endeavor to, uh, to evaluate uh, Ukraine's request. If they requested it, they believe that they need it. Do you think it's a mistake to not include ATACAMS in any aid package? Well, we're discussing it. It's a significant increase in capability. It'll help them. I mean, there are targets right now that they can't engage uh, with HIMARS and other systems. Uh, we, you know, had this discussion with military commanders. It's, uh, you know, something that they feel is, is necessary. And I think it'll make a difference in this fight. I want to turn to the news that Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer caved to a demand by Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville to bring up a small handful of votes on military promotions after Tuberville threatened to force a rare procedural vote to circumvent his months-long blockade on 300 other nominations and promotions because he objects to the Pentagon policy that provides a travel allowance for troops and their families uh, who want to travel to other states if they want to get abortion care. Uh, what is your response to this move by Schumer? Well, first of all, what Senator Tuberville is doing is unconscionable. Uh, I talked to uh, 10th Mountain Division uh, soldiers about this. This is having an effect uh, in Poland with the U.S. military. And anything affects, that affects the U.S. military 
in Poland supporting the fight in Ukraine, it affects that fight as well. So this is having an impact uh, in the war of Ukraine against Russia. Uh, it's really up to Tommy Tuberville uh, to release this hold. It's doing significant damage to our military. At the same time, I mean, some of these, uh, you know, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Chief of Staff of the Army, uh, it's important that we get these individuals confirmed. I just have a few seconds left, but I, but I wondered what you thought of uh, Schumer changing the Senate dress code. Uh, it will accommodate the, uh, what can perhaps best be called the uh, Broski takes the garbage to the curb on Sunday's uh, outfits that Senator uh, Fetterman from my beloved Commonwealth of Pennsylvania uh, favors. Do, do you like these more casual looks? Should they be allowed on the Senate floor? I don't like it, and uh, uh, I think it would have been better if we had a discussion about it ahead of time. All right, Senator Mark Kelly of Arizona, good to see you, sir. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you, Jake. Witness for the prosecution, a pro-Trump election denying lawyer is now cooperating with the Fulton County DA in the Georgia election subversion case. That's next. In our law and justice lead lawyers, for the former president, Donald Trump, were inside a Georgia courtroom today attending the hearing for three fake electors who were trying to get their cases in the Fulton County indictment moved to federal court. This, as we learn, a former election-denying pro-Trump lawyer is now a witness for the prosecution. Nick Valencia is outside the Fulton County, Georgia courthouse. Nick, this was supposed to be a routine hearing today, but things got pretty heated. That's right, Jake. This hearing was intended to address a technical motion by the fake electors who were trying to get their case moved from state court to federal court in hopes of getting it dismissed. But this quickly derailed into a pitch clash between the state and defense attorneys over whether or not this case was political in nature. The defense attorney for David Schaefer, one of the fake electors trying to get his case moved, said that this is, quote, a sad state of affairs in this country, that any supporter of the former president who participates in the political process is at risk of being indicted by the Fulton County District Attorney's Office. Schaefer's attorney went on to say that these fake electors were simply doing their civic duty and trying to uh, preserve the former president's right to contest the 2020 election. The state's attorneys, though, they pushed back on this claim, saying uh, that it was categorically false and that any indication that this was political in nature was just not true at all. They called it borderline offensive. And that prosecutor for the DA's office went on to say that anyone, whether or not they were Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, whatever, anyone who signed a fake elector certificate would have been charged by this district attorney's office. As for that motion, the judge did not rule at the end of the hearing, saying that he would decide at a later date. But perhaps the biggest bombshell of the day is what she alluded to, Jake, and that Lynn Wood, the former pro-Trump attorney, and perhaps one of the biggest peddlers of conspiracy theories in 2020, the post-2020 election cycle, uh, he is now listed as a witness for the state here. We did reach out to Lynn Wood to see if he is potentially cooperating or if he has flipped on the former president, but Wood did not immediately respond. Jake. All right, Nick Valencia, thanks so much. Also joining us is Robert James, former DeKalb County, Georgia District Attorney. Um, Mr. James, good to see you again. What do you make of the idea here that Lynn Wood, a pro-Trump lawyer who filed several meritless lawsuits filled with wild and false election fraud theories, somebody who had really built up a reputation for uh, unhinged behavior and claims, is actually a witness for the prosecution, is helping the DA's office. Um, what level of cooperation might be he providing, do you think? 
Well, it may be complete cooperation or it may not be complete cooperation. It may be a scenario where, you know, he's he's his lawyer and him have gotten together with the DA's office and they've decided, you know, that they're going to cooperate and assist. Or it may be a situation where he knows something or has said something that's documented and he's going to be called as an adverse or hostile witness and be forced to testify. Uh, Time will tell. What do you make of the fact that Trump's lawyers were in court today for this hearing for these three fake electors who were trying to move their case from Fulton County Court to federal court? Why would Trump lawyers be there possibly? Well, look, Trump's lawyers are going to be there. Number one, you know, if, if, if you're representing someone that's implicated in a conspiracy and that's essentially what's been charged here under the RICO statute in Georgia, you want to hear what the other lawyers have to say, right? You want to understand how it, how it works or jobs with your theory of your case. Um, number two, I suspect that if, if, if these lawyers for these quote unquote fake electors are successful, then it's going to embolden and empower Trump's lawyers and other lawyers to follow suit and do the exact same things and file the exact same motions. And so if you're Trump's lawyers, you want to hear all of it. How concerned do you think the other defendants' lawyers should be? How You said how conservative? How concerned? concerned? How concerned should the other defendants' lawyers be? Well, look, they should be very concerned if, you know, if, you know, if, if you're talking about a situation where people are cooperating, you know, o- otherwise, you know, listen, getting out of, in my opinion, getting out of Fulton County Superior Court and in the federal court is a long shot. Um, it's already been disfavored and turned down multiple occasions uh, by federal judges. I don't think it's going to happen. I think the further you get away from being employed as a federal employee and you're making arguments that you are acting as an elector, the less likely you're going to be removed. Uh, so I don't think it's going to work. Uh, but I think that the lawyers are just doing their jobs. All right. Robert James, good to see you. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. Thank you. As the world watches the horrors in Ukraine, another conflict is very worthy of your attention. This one in a region where there have been known calls for genocide. We're going to tell you where and why next. Topping our world lead, while the Western world's focus is on the largest ground war in Europe since World War II in Ukraine, there is a new ceasefire amid an explosion of violence this week at the heart of one of the world's longest conflicts. It's happening south of Russia in a majority Armenian territory within Azerbaijan, which has seen decades of ethnic clashes and bloodshed. And Russia is supposed to be trying to keep the peace. CNN's Nick Robertson explains what led to this latest round of deadly fighting. Casualties from Azerbaijan's deadly artillery assault rushed to hospital in the majority Armenian enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh. The Armenian death toll growing as the historic foe's fragile peace explodes into dangerous warfare with potentially disastrous consequences. We are concerned, and uh, uh, it is important that both parties now uh, de-escalate. A ceasefire agreed Wednesday, but they've been here before. Two wars in the past 30 years over the disputed region. But in June, Azerbaijan began blocking the strategic Lachin Corridor, the only link between Armenia proper 
and the 120,000 people living in the enclave. Internationally recognised as part of Azerbaijan, humanitarian aid convoys were denied access. Russian peacekeepers couldn't or wouldn't get them through. Food and fuel in the enclave were in short supply. Blocking the Lachin Corridor. Respected international lawyer Luis Marino Ocampo wrote a legal opinion calling the blockade genocide. Azerbaijan disputes his analysis. And in recent weeks, Armenians claimed Azerbaijani forces were massing weapons, readying for a new offensive. Tuesday, their fears of attack were realized. The enclave's de facto capital, Stepanakert, echoing to gun and artillery fire. Frightened women and children cowering in the street. You don't know how to live in such a situation, how to raise your children, when you constantly live in stress, tension, and no one wants to help you. Civilian homes smashed as Azerbaijani officials claim they've launched an offensive against terrorists, demanded the Armenian army leave and the Nagorno-Karabakh government disband and depart. Armenia denies it's the aggressor. EU politicians, while calling for calm, also calling out Russia's peacekeepers in action and Azerbaijan's intransigence. The fear for many Armenians is that Azerbaijan's terms for the ceasefire will be so tough they will feel forced to leave Nagorno-Karabakh. And that, they say, would be ethnic cleansing. Nick Robertson, CNN, London. Nick Robertson, thank you so much for that report. Coming up, the Guardian newspaper is reporting a stunning claim by Cassidy Hutchinson in her new book. Hutchinson, of course, the star witness for the January 6th committee. She's making groping accusations against Rudy Giuliani. Plus, what today's intense hearing on Capitol Hill with Attorney General Merrick Garland actually accomplishes. Stay with us. From executive producers Park Chanuk and Robert Downey Jr., The Sympathizer is the new HBO original limited series based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel of the same name. Join me, Philip Nguyen, a scholar of Vietnamese-American culture, and the cast and crew as we discuss the making of this historic series. Subscribe now to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and stream HBO's The Sympathizer starting April 14th exclusively on Max. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, funding fight growing more intense. A group of House Republicans have derailed the plan to fund the government while fellow conservatives call them out. Take a listen. It's completely inexplicable. Um, and uh, I think it's indefensible. So, you know, here we sit. So now we got to go try to figure out how to move the ball forward. Now 10 days left to fund the federal government. Even Republicans are warning the chances of a shutdown are growing more and more likely. Plus this hour, a stunning claim by a former Trump insider, Cassidy Hutchinson, in her new book coming out next week, reported by The Guardian. She writes in that upcoming book that Rudy Giuliani groped her on January 6th. Giuliani just responded. And leading this hour, Attorney General Merrick Garland's long, long day on Capitol Hill. 
trying to defend the Justice Department from Republican accusations that it has become politicized. Republicans say Garland has weaponized the DOJ to work in favor of the president's son, a claim that Garland attempted to forcefully push back against. Let's bring in CNN's Jessica Schneider. Jessica, what exactly did Garland say in response to this claim? Well, Jake, the attorney general repeatedly insisted throughout this very long five and a half hour hearing that neither he nor anyone at the Justice Department has ever interfered in any of the ongoing special counsel investigations. Of course, those include investigations into the former President Donald Trump and also the current president's son, Hunter Biden. But Republicans throughout this, they kept pressing, especially when it came to Hunter Biden. They questioned the attorney general about any interactions or conversations he may have have had with the FBI to that Garland really deflected to stress that he did not interfere, while at the same time refusing to answer any specifics about these ongoing investigations. And Republicans, especially Jim Jordan, they kept pressing on why it took so long for David Weiss to be named special counsel. Of course, Garland just appointed Weiss special counsel last month, even though this investigation into Hunter Biden has been ongoing for years. Here's the exchange with Jim Jordan. After five years, what stage are we in? Are we in the beginning stage, the middle stage, the end stage, the keep hiding the ball stage? What stage are we in? I think uh, this one I would go back to the videotape where I said I'm not permitted to discuss ongoing investigations. Well, that isn't that convenient. Something changed in 31 to 32 days from July 10th to August 11th. I think it's two brave whistleblowers came forward and a judge called BS on the plea deal. You guys tried to get past them. That's what I think happened. And the attorney general never did quite say what led to the ultimate appointment of the special counsel. But he did repeatedly insist that throughout this process, Weiss was never given limits um, all these years of this investigation. Now, Jake, there was one Republican that did seem to come to Garland's defense somewhat. It was Colorado Republican Ken Buck. And he really said that Garland was in an impossible position and that even though the attorney general did keep on David Weiss as U.S. attorney in Delaware from the Trump administration, Buck does believe that Garland was bound to be slammed as biased no matter what he did or what powers he ultimately gave Weiss. So, you know, Buck also there trying to give uh, Garland a compliment for attempting to remain apolitical in his role, of course, That's a sentiment that the other Republicans, at least today, did not share. Jake. All right, Jessica Schneider, thanks so much. Let's get some reaction from our political experts. Uh, Garland uh, insisted that the Justice Department is independent. He said it was not weaponized, not politicized, as Republicans repeatedly alleged. Here's part of what he had to say. Our job is not to do what is politically convenient. Our job is not to take orders from the president from Congress or from anyone else about who or what to criminally investigate. As the president himself has said, and I reaffirm today, I am not the president's lawyer. I will add, I am not Congress's prosecutor. So, uh, Ken Jennings, I mean, Scott Jennings, sorry, what, what do you think of this? I mean, like, I understand that there's a lot of Republican skepticism of this, Scott. But do you see evidence that he has done President Biden's bidding? Well, I think this is a case where multiple things can be true. Number one, it can be true that a grand jury saw enough evidence to indict Donald Trump, and, and for good reason. That's obviously happened, and that can be true. It can also be true that we all have eyes and ears and saw what happened on January the 6th and can draw our own conclusions about who was responsible. 
And it can be true that he really does need to be judged by a jury of his peers before the next election. It can also be true and is true that it has been reported publicly that Joe Biden has told people in the White House, in his inner circle, that he was upset with Merrick Garland for not moving fast enough and that he personally believed that Donald Trump should be prosecuted. He has said in gaggles that he thought people uh, 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 who were going before the January 6th committee should be prosecuted. So I think multiple things can be true here, but it's obvious that Biden has communicated his displeasure with, at least at one time, with how slow it was moving and how long it was taking to prosecute Donald Trump. By reporting, by saying that to, to people, not necessarily specifically to Garland. Well, I mean, he said it to people and it wound up on the front page of the New York Times. So I assume Merrick Garland reads the New York Times I and mean, he doesn't have to pick up the phone to call the guy. That, that doesn't mean that the Justice Department is wrong and it doesn't mean that the investigation or the indictments are inherently corrupt. But it does mean, you know, multiple things could be true here. And, and you know, it looks like based on the polls today, Jake, the American people are going to have to render ultimate judgment on this uh, next November. Jamal. Well, there's a bigger question here, Jake. The president, President Biden, that is, has been trying to reestablish some level of like understanding that the Justice Department is an independent agency. It's going to act independently. The president is not talking to the attorney general by all measures. No one, no one has alleged that. He's not talking to the attorney general. Now, if he talks to somebody who talks to somebody who talks to somebody, you know, this is Washington. Everybody's doing that. So I think the question here is, are we going to have a Justice Department that is pursuing real crime, real criminals? And let's keep in mind, the, the, the question on, at hand is about Hunter Biden. They have been investigating Hunter Biden for five years. If we go back one, two, three, four, five years, that's 2018. They have been going after him. And you know who was president in 2018? Donald Trump. So if the Republicans are upset that nothing happened uh, in this investigation, they should start with being upset with Donald Trump and Bill Barr. If they couldn't find anything, I don't know anybody who could. So beyond Hunter Biden, whose troubles took up a lot of the time of the hearing today, there were also questions about the prosecutions and investigations into Donald Trump. Trump said on Meet the Press that the charges he is facing as part of special counsel Jack Smith's classified documents and election interference probes are, quote, Biden political indictments and that Biden, quote, said to the attorney general, indict him, unquote. Now, obviously, there is zero evidence of any of that. Garland was asked about that today. No one has told me uh, to indict, and in this case, the decision to indict was made by the special counsel. So that statement the president made on Sunday was false? I'm just going to say again that uh, no one has told me uh, who should be indicted uh, in, uh, in, in, in any matter like this, and uh, the decision about indictment was made by Mr. Smith. But Scott, do you think that will convince anybody? Uh, no, I look, I think Republicans, uh, because Donald Trump has said this, will uh, want to believe that these are political indictments. I think Democrats will want to believe that Donald Trump deserves it. Uh, and, uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, like, like I said a minute ago, I think that, that the ultimate judgment here, I mean, if Trump doesn't go to trial on anything before the election, I mean, I guess the American people are going to have to decide, you know, whether whether he uh, deserves to be held responsible for any of this. I mean, look, I take Merrick Garland at his word. He said this under oath today, uh, and I hope what he said is true, and I don't have any evidence to indicate that it isn't true. But what I said earlier, uh, I think what Trump is responding to are press reports that Biden was upset that he hadn't been prosecuted yet, which came, you know, in the last year. So there's a lot of, a lot of chum in the water, but I think, I think maybe we all three believe none of it is going to move, <laughs> move the, the most partisans am, uh, among us. 
uh, as it relates to the public opinion on these matters. Jamal, what do you think? You know, there are a lot of Democrats who are upset with Merrick Garland, the attorney general right now, because they think that he is overzealous when it comes to going after uh, Hunter Biden. They think that uh, maybe perhaps he shouldn't have let an a, a independent uh, special counsel go after the president um, on the records case. Some people who think that Merrick Garland is, protect, is protecting his own reputation more than he's doing his job as attorney general. Now, he's getting flack from the left for that, while he's also getting flack today from the right. I think if you're Merrick Garland, that makes you believe perhaps you're doing the right thing that you are taking on heat from everybody, from all corners, and you're trying to call balls and strikes as you see them and do justice without fear and favor, fear or favor. Scott Jennings, Jamal Simmons, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. Coming up next, the finger pointing outside the Capitol this afternoon that goes inside the funding fight and efforts, or lack thereof, to prevent a government shutdown next week. We will speak live with a former Trump White House insider on the explosive new claims uh, from Cassidy Hutchinson's new book, in the Guardian newspaper about Rudy Giuliani's actions regarding her on January 6th. That's next. Back with our politics lead up on the Hill as lawmakers race to come to an agreement on a short-term spending bill before the government shuts down in just 10 days. CNN's own Manu Raju tracked down some of the more, shall we say, opinionated Republicans this afternoon. Here's a taste. Uh, With all due respect to my conservative colleagues, let them go explain why they don't support that. It's completely inexplicable. Um, And uh, I think it's indefensible. So, you know, here we sit. So now we got to go try to figure out how to move the ball forward. But we had agreement in good faith with people across the conference. The speaker's job be in peril if he relies on Democrats. Uh, It wouldn't be a good move. Now, if Republican moderates want to go team up with Democrats and sign a discharge petition to take over the floor with Democrats, well, they'll be signing their own political death warrant and they'll be handing it to their executioner because it'll be the very Democrats they act in concert with who will hunt them during the upcoming election season. I would never like to see a shutdown, but uh, if that's where it's going, that's where it's going. Let's bring in Texas Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez. He's on the House Appropriations Committee and is a member of the Bipartisan Problem Solvers Caucus, which met today. Congressman Gonzalez, We know at a Republican conference meeting that started at 4 p.m., it's still ongoing. You just came from there. Take us inside negotiations today. Where where are things? Yeah, Jake, well, first, we got to stop lying to the American public. You know, Washington politicians are failing America. Uh, President Biden is responsible for this failure. The Senate is responsible for this failure. And House Republicans are responsible for this failure if the government shuts down. I left a meeting where we were talking about top line numbers that we know for sure the Senate isn't going to pass or or consider at all. That's like determining what color your bedroom is going to be. Is it going to be red or is it going to be blue when when your mortgage is due on Monday? So we're not having serious conversations. It's always somebody else's fault but ours. And it's, it's absolutely dangerous to the American public if we have this shutdown. You want to pass a bill that the Senate will go along with and President Biden will sign into law a short-term spending bill. Is that right? Yes. I'm of the mindset that this country is void of serious leaders that want to solve serious problems. 
The border is certainly serious. National security is certainly serious. Making sure our government doesn't shut down should absolutely be serious. We should be having serious conversations. In the House, I'm, I sit on the Appropriations Committee. My expectation is a conservative uh, budget that, that tackles some of the excess spending, makes sure that we secure the border. Some of these things that the American public have elected House Republicans to do, and then the Senate works through it, and then ultimately it gets to a point where the President of the United States will sign it into law. We're light years away from any of that right now. You represent a large swath of the Texas-Mexico border. You said you're against the current Republican proposal for the continuing uh, resolution. Uh, The White House estimates that that continuing resolution in its current form would eliminate 800 Customs and Border Protection agents and officers. Are are you surprised that your fellow Republicans, many of whom campaign on the the crisis at the border, uh, are in support of this plan? Jake, everybody's lying to the American public. You know, we passed, House Republicans passed H.R. 2 months ago, and it was a very conservative bill, knowing full well that that bill was never going to become law. In a district like mine, 800 miles of the southern border, today is the two-year anniversary of what happened in Del Rio. We, we all remember the Haitians under the bridge. Well, fast forward two years, and now there are thousands of Venezuelans in, in Eagle Pass under a bridge. I mean, the exact same situation. It's absolutely chaotic. Chaotic. We got to have real solutions. Part of those real solutions is enforcing the laws that are on the books. Every president has had to do this. President Trump, President Obama, Clinton, Bush. And that's simply, if you do not qualify for asylum, you send them back to their country of origin. These are the level of discussions we need to have instead of the finger pointing of whose fault it is, because it's not fair to the American public. Also under the, uh, this Republican proposal, the government would not be allowed to fund non-governmental organizations or NGOs that provide shelter to migrants. Uh, is your district prepared for NGOs to not be allowed to provide shelter for migrants? You know, right now, uh, we're not prepared. And right now, our capacity is completely overwhelmed. And, and you know, yesterday, the mayor of Eagle Pass declared a, 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 a state of emergency. Another factor is, I mean, little known fact, the city of, of Eagle Pass has received zero federal dollars from Biden. You know, of course, money's going other places. New York City, the city of Eagle Pass is getting absolutely crushed right now. Nobody is, is, is having a serious conversation on it. Some of the things that we need to do is we need to add more Border Patrol agents to it and start enforcing this law. This shouldn't be a political issue. We shouldn't bring up things that are fake and have no chance of passing just so we can blame each other. These people right now are in Eagle Pass today. Tomorrow, they're in L.A., they're in Chicago, they're all over the country. We need to come together and solve this problem in a real meaningful way. Texas Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez, thanks for coming on. Good to see you again, sir. Thank you, Jake. A 2024 presidential candidate believes they can get gas prices down to $2 a gallon. That is quite an ambitious pledge. Who's making it? We'll tell you next. Let's cue the election music for today's 2024 lead. Nice. Nice. Former President Donald Trump is in Iowa today and teasing even more visits to the state as he renews attention to his 2024 campaign. Then there is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. He's deep in oil country today and making a big promise. Two dollars a gallon in his first year in office, he says. He has a long ways to go. Today's national average, according to AAA, is three dollars and 87 cents a gallon. That's 20 cents higher than last year. CNN's Jessica Dean is in Midland, Texas today, where DeSantis is making this pitch. 
Today it's great to be back in West Texas. Florida Governor and 2024 GOP presidential candidate Ron DeSantis unveiling his energy policy in the heart of oil country. I will restore our freedom to fuel. I will ensure that the United States of America is the dominant energy producer in the entire world. DeSantis's plan includes ramping up domestic oil and gas exploration and production, removing the United States from the Paris Climate Accords and other net zero emissions commitments, allowing more pipelines and mining on federal lands, and repealing President Joe Biden's electric vehicle subsidies and other Biden-supported legislation targeted at supporting electric vehicles. DeSantis also pledged to get gas prices to $2 a gallon, though presidents have limited tools at their disposal to control prices at the pump. I think we can definitely get under three and towards two. And the reality is we're going to have a very favorable environment for this. While DeSantis acknowledged climate disasters are, quote, problematic, he said much of the discussion around it is fear-mongering. The climate clearly has changed. You can, you can judge that, uh, I think, objectively. I think the question is, is what policy posture are we going to take from that? As governor of Florida, DeSantis finds himself confronting some of the top concerns posed by climate change, from rising sea levels to more intense hurricanes. We've seen things just recently, like the flooding this summer, the smoke that came in from the Canadian wildfire. How concerned are you about climate change? Where do you prioritize that? And what do you say to Americans who are concerned about that, particularly parents who are worried about, like, their kids can't go play out when it's smoky like that? In a major instance like that, I mean, obviously those are things we have to deal with, and, and those, are, those, are, those are problematic. I mean, we deal with hurricanes in Florida. We deal with fires, too, um, in Florida. But what, what I would say is... When, when Joe Biden says that he's more worried, like, in 10 years with the climate than a nuclear war, I mean, I'm sorry, that's just not true. DeSantis also making the case here that Americans are actually safer from climate disasters due to oil and gas. Uh, using the example, Jake, of the recent hurricane in Florida, he said it was because of oil and gas he was able to get the power back on for a lot of Floridians. Jake? And Jess, uh, even though Donald Trump is perhaps more responsible for Roe v. Wade being overturned than anyone other than Mitch McConnell, uh, he went after Ron DeSantis on Sunday for um, signing into law a, a, a six-week abortion ban. It's almost basically essentially a, a full abortion ban. Um, DeSantis has really been going after Trump for that. Um, what did he have to say today? He, he, he sure has. I think this is really an issue where DeSantis and his team feel like they can really put a wedge between himself and Trump voters, uh, especially those evangelicals who perhaps might live in Iowa where they're going to have those caucuses. But what he said today in an interview with NBC News or with ABC News, rather, Jake, is that he called Trump's comments a big mistake. And he made the case to voters that Trump is simply not the candidate that he was in 2015. DeSantis saying that he's drifted away uh, from where he was on a lot of these positions in 2015 again, seeking to really capitalize the difference on this on this abortion issue, which he thinks uh, will be a winner for him when it comes to when it comes to seeing people at the polls. Jake. All right, Jessica Dean in Midland, Texas. Thank you so much. President Joe Biden met with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in New York today. But did the Israeli leader get that coveted invite to the White House? I'm going to talk to Israel's ambassador to the U.S. who was in that meeting next. Quote, like a wolf closing in on its prey, 
unquote. That's how former Trump White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson describes former Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani approaching her and groping her on January 6, 2021. The shocking allegation is made in Hutchinson's new book, Enough, which comes out next Tuesday. The quotes were first reported and by the Guardian newspaper and confirmed to CNN. The former top White House aide turned star witness in the January 6 hearings writes in her book, according to the Guardian, that before Trump spoke on January 6 in front of his supporters at that rally and before his supporters marched on and many of whom then attacked Congress, Trump's lawyer, Giuliani, approached Cassidy Hutchinson backstage, quote, Rudy wraps one arm around my body, closing the space that was separating us. I lower my eyes and watch his free hand reach for the hem of my blazer. By the way, he says, fingering the fabric, I'm loving this leather jacket on you. His hand slips under my blazer, then my skirt. She writes, quote, I feel his frozen fingers trail up my thigh. He tilts his chin up. The whites of his eyes look jaundiced. My eyes dart to John Eastman, who flashes a leering grin. I fight against the tension in my muscles and recoil from Rudy's grip. Filled with rage, I storm through the tent on yet another quest for Mark, unquote, Meadows, the White House chief of staff and Cassidy Hutchinson's boss. The Guardian newspaper says that the book describes Hutchinson's experiences leading up to January 6 as she, quote, experienced anger, bewilderment, and a creeping sense of dread that, some, that something really horrible was going to happen, unquote. Now, in response to this leak excerpt, leaked excerpt published in The Guardian, Ted Goodman, a political advisor to Mayor, Mayor Giuliani, issued a statement this afternoon saying, quote, it's fair to ask Cassidy Hutchinson why she is just now coming out with these allegations from two and a half years ago as part of the marketing campaign for her upcoming book release. This is a disgusting lie against Mayor Rudy Giuliani, a man whose distinguished career in public service includes taking down the mafia, cleaning up New York City, and comforting the nation following September 11th, unquote. Lawyers for former Trump attorney John Eastman also responded. They said, quote, Dr. Eastman categorically denies the allegation that he witnessed the conduct Ms. Hutchinson apparently attributes to Mayor Giuliani in her forthcoming book, or that he flashed a leering smile at Ms. Hutchinson at that time or at any time. Eastman does not recall ever having met Ms. Hutchinson and did not even know who she was until her public testimony before the select committee in the House of Representatives in June 2022, unquote. The lawyers also said that Eastman is considering suing, quote, those responsible for making of publishing these libelous allegations, unquote, though he has not made any filings in court at this time, and it's not really clear what exactly would be libelous. Next week in her first CNN interview, Cassidy Hutchinson will share her story with me, and you can see that interview next Tuesday right here on The Lead, beginning at 4 o'clock Eastern. We will be right back. 
And our world lead, President Biden, met with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu today in New York, marking the first time the two leaders have met since Netanyahu returned to office last December. Biden offering Netanyahu a warm welcome before telling reporters the two would discuss some big policy issues. Today, uh, we're going to discuss some of the hard issues, and that is upholding democratic values that lie at the heart of our partnership, including uh, checks and balances in our systems, and preserving a path to a negotiated two-state solution, and uh, ensuring that Iran never, never acquires a nuclear weapon. Joining us now to discuss is Israel's ambassador to the United Nations, Gilad Erdan. Uh, ambassador Erdan, thanks so much for joining us. So you, correct me if I'm wrong, you were in parts of the meeting between Prime Minister Netanyahu and President Biden. What can you tell us about how the meeting went? Well, I can tell you that uh, it was a very warm uh, meeting. It lasted uh, more than an hour. Uh, they held an open discussion, but it was so warm uh, that... Uh, all of us, we were uh, left out of the room. So uh, both leaders, uh, they held the meeting only in uh, four eyes, as we say. Uh, but it was really a very important meeting. And the president invited Prime Minister Netanyahu, already invited him uh, to visit uh, Washington and meet him uh, in the Oval Office. And uh, most of the meeting uh, was focused on how to prevent Iran from acquiring nuclear capabilities and obviously also how to advance uh, the new circle of peace that we have now in the Middle East, and especially, of course, uh, the peace with uh, Saudi Arabia, that we are so grateful to the United States, the administration, that they are doing all these efforts uh, to try and achieve this uh, historic peace. What can you tell us about those efforts with Saudi Arabia? Because there have been discussions about there needing to be some efforts uh, to uh, bring some autonomy, some uh, efforts at Palestinian self-rule uh, in the West Bank in order for the Saudis to agree to full diplomatic uh, arrangements. Uh, what, what more can you tell us about that? Let me just uh, first say that if uh, such a peace uh, with, with uh, Saudi Arabia achieved, that would definitely will be a game-changer in the Middle East because of the unique status of Saudi Arabia as the guardian of the, the protector of the holiest site uh, for uh, Islam. Obviously, the Saudis, and they made it uh, clear publicly that they want to see also some progress uh, regarding the uh, Palestinians. Uh, we are willing to discuss uh, some concessions or uh, maybe... Uh, economic steps that could ease and help the Palestinians' daily life. But still, you know, it's being led by, uh, by the administration. Uh, we don't want to make any damages. And once we will be, we'll be presented uh, with the whole package, uh, we'll be able to decide upon our priorities. But I want to uh, maybe remind your viewers that three years ago, we, are, we just celebrated three years to the Abram Accords, where we, when we normalize relations uh, with uh, the UAE, with uh, Bahrain, with Morocco, uh, there was also a, a price that Israel uh, paid. We, we agreed to postpone applying the Israeli law in some areas of uh, the West Bank, what, you call, what we call Judea and Samaria. And I'm sure that because many people today in Israel, they understand the importance of having 
uh, peace with Saudi Arabia, then the prime minister and the, the government would decide upon our priorities once uh, a full deal would be presented by the administration. In addition uh, to that, there, there has been increased talks in the United States about tying foreign aid with more of an insistence on, on human rights uh, in the countries where there are human rights, human, uh, that are receiving the human aid, given the status of Palestinians in the West Bank, not in Israel itself, but in the West Bank, do you think that there would be more willingness in the Israeli government, among the Israeli public, to reconsider uh, how the Palestinians are treated, how the uh, Palestinians are able to or not able to um, self-rule, if that meant losing some of the aid from the United States? Well, look, uh, thank God Israel's economy is, uh, is booming, is prosperous, but I think that, uh, you know, the security aid that we receive, and we are grateful to the United States for receiving this security aid, is mutually beneficial. It's not only helping the United States. We are sharing intelligence. Uh, you know, our... Uh, Missile defense systems are also defending American troops in Iraq and in other areas of the world. Our intelligence agencies are helping to protect also American citizens from uh, terror attacks. So we should separate between this important military aid that we receive from our closest ally, the United States of America, and the need to always try and improve the daily life of the Palestinians, we suggested a variety of economic uh, projects. Uh, you know, we, we held uh, the Aqaba talks. We have many uh, economic projects that we want to advance. Unfortunately, the Palestinians and the Palestinian leadership, we just saw President Abbas, the Palestinian president, blaming the Jews for the Holocaust. He is continuing to pay terrorists with salaries. Uh, you know, he's uh, continuing to incite terrorism, glorify uh, terrorists. So the problem is not on our side. The problem is that because of political reasons, because of hate, uh, Palestinian hate, they continue to mm -hmm. prevent any prospect for peace, for prosperity, for their own people. We, there's nothing that we would like more than to see them advancing and having a better quality of life. All right. Israeli ambassador to the United Nations, Gilad Erdan, uh, thank you so much. Have an easy fast uh, this Yom Kippur. Thank you, Jake. Thank you for having me. Let's turn back to our law and justice lead and those shocking allegations made by former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson in her new book, Enough, according to the Guardian newspaper, which obtained excerpts of the book. Uh, Hutchinson claims that Rudy Giuliani uh, groped her backstage against of the January 6th, ahead of the January 6th rally uh, before Trump spoke to his supporters and before they stormed the Capitol. Uh, the quotes were first reported by The Guardian and confirmed to CNN. Uh, Giuliani uh, denies through a, through a political advisor uh, what happened, uh, uh, what, uh, what Hutchinson claims happened. I want to bring in Alyssa Farrah Griffin, uh, former Trump White House communications director. Uh, you have worked with both Cassidy Hutchinson and you know Rudy Giuliani, who was obviously had close ties to the Trump White House. Um, whom do you believe? Uh, did you, have you heard about this before today? 
Well, I unequivocally believe uh, my friend Cassie Hutchinson. She's somebody I know to be a person of her word. And she had told me um, something similar with probably a little less detail than I saw in The Guardian reporting, but just about him getting handsy. And I want to be careful in saying this, but it was a known fact within the Trump White House that Rudy Giuliani was a liability. There was often a worry that he would show up to the White House complex, perhaps inebriated, um, to the point where I was actually given a directive uh, from the president to make sure that he wasn't trying to do stand-ups on television on the White House lawn because you just weren't sure what he was going to do, what he was going to say. This, frankly, tracks with things that have been reported before that Giuliani has done. And I mean, I think it's a shame for a lot of us who once admired the former mayor to see him descend into this. But I absolutely believe her account. And it doesn't in any way shock me that this happened. And no one in the Trump White House hierarchy did anything about it at the time. Alyssa, I have to say, um, having covered uh, the Trump campaign and uh, then the Trump White House, this is not the first time we've heard uh, about somebody associated with Trump or Trump himself behaving in a manner toward women that can uh, charitably be described as boorish. Well, certainly. Um, And I think that there are folks, whether supporters of his, those of us who worked for him, who wanted to believe that some of the worst allegations against him maybe weren't true. And you wanted to try to see the best um, in in the man that was elected the leader of the free world. But I personally witnessed behavior that I thought was inappropriate. I've spoken openly that I reported uh, behavior that I thought was inappropriate by the former president to female staff, to the former White House chief of staff. Nothing was done about it at the time. Um, And listen, you're the company you keep. Uh, The former president was very close to Rudy Giuliani. He knew the reputation he had. He knew the concerns that he shared and that his staff shared about how he might arrive at the White House and how he might conduct himself. Yet he kept him around and, by the way, took his advice about you know, how we were going to challenge the election results over his hand-picked White House counsel. The the whole thing is a mess. It shouldn't be really a surprise to anyone, but it's still stunning in this day and age that a White House staffer would experience that on the ellipse of the White House. And, you know, we wouldn't even know about it till she has to write about it in her book. I want to turn to another uh, big story today dealing with Donald Trump. ABC and The New York Times are reporting that former President Trump told an aide, Molly Michael, to not tell investigators about the boxes of classified documents that he kept at Mar-a-Lago. This is post-presidency. But you know uh, Ms. Michael because you worked with her in the Trump White House. Uh, How credible is her testimony? What was her relationship with Donald Trump like if she is telling investigators that that's what he told her to not tell investigators the truth about these documents? Would you believe her? Uh, I certainly would believe her word. Listen, I would describe Molly Michael as a highly professional individual who I think took a lot of pride in her job. She was essentially the gatekeeper into the Oval Office. So her desk was an outer oval. Uh, The former president would, you know, holler to her to get this senator on the line, bring this person in. She was also responsible for trying to keep certain people out of the outer oval. But she was enough of a loyalist to him that she followed him to Mar-a-Lago in the post-presidency. She's not somebody who by any means would have ever wanted to turn against Donald Trump. But she's also someone I I have, um, I think, highly enough of to think she also would tell the truth under oath. I completely believe her accounting of this. Um, I think she knows the stakes. And I do think she's somebody who took her public service seriously. So I believe what she's saying. Alyssa Farrah Griffin, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. And a reminder, you can see Cassidy Hutchinson's first interview on CNN Tuesday, six days from now, right here on The Lead. We'll be right back. We're back with The Buried Lead. Those are stories we feel deserve more attention. 
A sobering statistic from the U.S. Census Bureau shows that the child poverty rate in the United States has more than doubled in the last year from 5.2% to 12.4%. Democratic New York Congressman Jamal Bowman blames Congress for the rise, writing on X, formerly known as Twitter, quote, let me be very clear, things like the child tax credit and SNAP reduce child poverty by refusing to extend and expand these life-saving programs. Congress is complicit in this crisis. And Congressman Bowman joins us now. Congressman, good to have you on. It can be difficult to see the direct result of government policies on people's lives, but this seems pretty clear. The expanded child tax credit gave more money or tax credits to low-income families. After it took effect, child poverty dropped to record lows. Why did Congress let it run out? Republicans let the child tax credit run out after Democrats cut child poverty in half by 50% in 2021. If we are not taking care of our children, we do not have a democracy, we do not have a society. When you see high child poverty, you see high levels of childhood trauma. You see high levels of children struggling with mental health and substance abuse, and you see higher levels of violence. So it is on us to do something about this issue once and for all, not year to year. We need to end child poverty in America once and for all. Now, I spoke with Senator Bernie Sanders, um, who doesn't only blame Republicans for letting these programs expire. This is Sunday. Take a listen to what he had to say. What we, we put in that tax credit that substantially lowered childhood poverty in America, we put that into the American Rescue Plan. Uh, We try to put it back into so-called Build Back Better plan, which had zero Republican support and did not have the support of Mr. Manchin and Ms. Cinema. Thank you. So he's also saying uh, that Manchin and Cinema were to blame. That's exactly right. The cowardly way in which Manchin and Cinema continue to govern astonishes me. I come from education. I worked with the most vulnerable children in our country for 20 years before coming to Congress. And then I have two members of my own party in the Senate, not in the House. Democrats in the House did the right thing. Two members of my own party in the Senate vote against uh, continuing to cut childhood poverty. They also voted against uh, higher uh, taxes for corporations. They also voted against and didn't support a higher minimum wage. So when you have Democrats not supporting the most vulnerable, you really have elected officials who have lost their way. And we lost the reason why we were brought here and voted into Congress in the first place, to do the work for the people, not our own pockets and not the wealthiest among us. So I'm a little older than you. And I remember long before Obamacare, there was a thing called, uh, I think it was called CHIP. It was uh, Orrin Hatch and Ted Kennedy coming together to pass health care for kids. The idea being that, like, okay, we're not going to provide universal health care for adults, but we can all agree kids should have it. Uh, Same thing here with with poverty, I'm I'm supposing. What about just the idea of trying to work across the aisle, get Democrats and Republicans just to push for that? Is there any way that you think the Democrats and Republicans could come together just on that issue? Not with the current Republicans in the House. This is a non-starter for them. They don't want to do anything as it relates to ending child poverty or passing legislation that supports affordability and helps those who are most vulnerable. That includes child poverty. That includes child care. 
that includes affordable housing, that includes doing anything on climate change, that includes doing anything on gun violence, which is still a number one killer of children in our country. So the current Republicans in Congress do not want to help our children or the most vulnerable people. That's why we have to vote them out next year and vote the right people in office who are going to respond to the crises we are in as it relates to our children. But are you sure about that? I mean, have you have you reached out to like Congressman Lawler needs Democratic votes yeah. to win re-election? I mean, I hear like I get you're a very partisan Democrat. Is it not possible that there's a Republican you can work with as long as you don't sound when you talk to him the way you just sounded talking to me? Well, I talk to Congressman Lawler all the time. He's right next door to me, and he has shown he hasn't shown the ability to lead. We need leadership, and he has not led on any of the issues I mentioned. All right, Democratic Congressman Jamal Bowman, we'll have you back. Thanks so much for coming on today. Appreciate it. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 